this day is Sanctity of Human Life Day, and we set this day aside every year to reaffirm the value and worth of every human being. This third Sunday of January was chosen for this because it's the Sunday closest to the anniversary of a, a decision, a Supreme Court decision, almost 40 years ago. It's called Roy Roe v. Wade, and uh, it was made on January 22, 1973. And Roe v. Wade was that decision by the Supreme Court to legalize abortion on demand in America, all across America, to uh, say the states could not weigh in on that and have laws about that. Now, normally on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is tomorrow, there is a March for Life in Washington, D.C. to protest this decision. Uh, tomorrow, however, there's going to be another parade there, and it's called an inauguration parade. Barack Obama will begin his second term as President of the United States. As I thought about that for a moment, I thought, you know, this is kind of symbolic of where America is today. Uh, we want to ask for God's blessing on America, and yet we don't want to listen to and obey God. And we deny some of the very things that God says are true. So our, our national stance on abortion, our national stance on, on uh, same-sex marriage and other things are startling examples of the shift that has taken place in our country. Um, as the tragedy occurred at Newtown, Connecticut, 20 innocent, beautiful children were killed uh, that day. Uh, many of us, all of us, I'd say, have been heartbroken over that uh, for their families and for those children. But at the same time, who mourns the death of hundreds of children uh, that are killed through abortion every week. And so, as we come to this point in our country, as we have Inauguration Day t tomorrow and our president begins another term, we need to really pray for our president, we need to pray for other civic leaders, because they are charged with the responsibility to lead this nation. We need to pray, first, that their hearts will be open. And that they will be open to God's will, not to the will of the people. Because it's, it's far more important for us to know God's will than it is for us to know the will of the people. The opinions of, of any man don't, just don't add up. So whether we are young or old, whether we are uh, male or female, whether we are born or pre-born, whether we are healthy or infirm, we have value. We have worth to Almighty God. We are human beings made in His image. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, the first chapter of the Bible, God's word says at the beginning of time, God created mankind. He created both males and females in his image. Genesis 1.26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And by doing so, God gave value, God gave dignity, God gave worth to every human being made in his image. We have been given freedoms and responsibilities no other creatures on earth have. We are the overseers of this planet. We are at the top of the food chain. But it is our responsibility to listen to God and to take care of the planet as he, he deems fit. Our text for this morning actually comes from the New Testament. It's from the book called Acts, chapter 17. If you have one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you, you could go to page 771, kind of hold it there. 
But let me kind of give you a background to this text in Acts 17. The book of Acts is Dr. Luke's historical account of the first few years of the Church of Christ. Particularly, he tells us about the Acts of the Apostles, those 12 apostles that Jesus handpicked, and also Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. And in chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is on his third missionary journey throughout the Roman Empire. This time, his preaching has taken him to the country called Greece, and particularly to the city of Athens. He finds himself in Athens preaching the gospel for the first time, and he's in synagogues uh, preaching and reasoning with the Jews there and anyone else who wanted to listen. His companions have left him alone for a few weeks while they went back to Berea and other places, and, and they are instructed to come and, and uh, gather with him again. But kind of as he's alone, Paul is kind of walking through the city, and he's looking at things. He's looking at all these beautiful temples, and today we have the ruins of some of those. But imagine when they were new. <laughs> imagine when they were in all their glory. And he's walking around Athens, and he's seeing all these temples and shrines dedicated to various gods and goddesses that the people of that day worshipped. And he comes across this temple that surprises him. And in this temple, there's priests and everything. I mean, it's a full-blown temple, and it's not named after anybody. It's called the Temple to the Unknown God. And he says, that's a, that's a curious thing. Why would they have a Temple to the Unknown God? Well, apparently, these people are so, so religious that they want to make sure they get all the bases covered. <laughs> they have all the other gods and goddesses here in Athens. Let's make sure there's a temple just in case we miss somebody. And uh, Paul, Paul is invited uh, to speak to a group called the Areopagus, kind of a, a religious think tank of the day or a philosophical think tank. And he decides to ask them about this temple. We're going to pick it up in Acts 17, and we're going to go down to verse 16, first of all. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Others uh, and they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And then as a parenthesis, Luke says, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. The Areopagus was this group of philosophers and intellectuals who were probably the most intelligent people in the city. Paul was privileged to speak to them, but he had no false hopes of maybe immediately converting them, you know, convincing them and getting them to join the cause of Christ. He, he wasn't really thinking that would happen. He thought, maybe, maybe at the most I can reason with them. Maybe at the most I can plant some seeds, something for them to think about, hoping that these seeds in their minds would maybe, maybe take, fruit and, uh, take root and, and be able to 
to help them see who the true God is. Not all these other gods and goddesses, but this one God who is the true God. Going on, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and touch him. Though he is now far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Hmm. You know, we in America are a lot like those Greeks in Athens. In our pluralistic society, a lot of views are tolerated even embraced by society at large. A great variety of religious and philosophical views are regarded as equals today. You know, believe whatever you want. Just be sincere, and that's what the real test is. People are free to believe whatever they want to believe without fear of persecution or ridicule. And I want to tell you this morning, I believe in the freedom of religion, freedom of speech as much as the next guy. As someone else said, I may disagree with you and your opinion, but I will defend to the death your right to have it. But is it true that every view is just as valid as the next one? Is that true? Is every religion as valid as the next one? Is every philosophy as valid, as true as the next one? And so on and so on. Is it even logical to think that? Well, no, it's not. Not every idea is right. Not every philosophy is right. Not everything is as true as the next. Some are right, some are wrong. Some are true, some are false. Think about that for a minute. If something is true, that means that something else is not true. Right? Everything can't be true. Everything can't be wrong. You can't just take a path that says every view is equally valid. Every view is just as valid as any other view. And in America today, we're, we're being taught to tolerate and even to accommodate every ide- ideology, every value, every philosophy that's out there somewhere. Let's be honest here. Some of them are true and some of them are false. Better figure out which is which. This is similar to what Paul was up against as he came to Athens as he was invited to speak to the Areopagus. He looked around the impressive city of temples and shrines and the magnificent buildings. He's given the opportunity now to speak to the leading cities of that, citizens of the city, and the words God gave him were truthful and true. But not too many people were convinced of their truth. On this Sanctity of Life Day, let's see what God's word might have to say for us through Paul's speech. Please note three things this morning. First of all, God is the giver and sustainer of life. He's the author. He's the one that holds it all together. Paul even says, in him we have our being. We we can't exist without him. 
Paul says, God gives all men life and breath. The giver of life, he says, the giver of breath. I want you to do a little exercise with me this morning. You're going to have to do something physically here. Do me a favor. Take a deep breath. Hold it. Okay, let it out. Oh, good. I'm, I can hear the breathing going on. That's good. It's really healthy when you breathe. Okay. Now, take a deep breath and hold it. I'll tell you when to let go. Okay. That's the quietest it's ever been in here. Okay, let it out. <sighs> Some of you, that's about as far as I can go. Okay, now we're going to have a little contest. We're going to take another deep breath, see who can hold it the longest. Okay? Hold it as long as you can. Don't pass out, but hold it as long as you can. Okay? Ready? Take a deep breath. Some people are still going. It's good. <laughs> Who's still up? Good. Take your hand down when you when you lose your ability to hold it anymore. <laughs> Hands are coming down. Few still up. Good job. Good job. Okay, we'll let all of you off the hook. I don't have time for this. <laughs> You know, there are people that do diving all the time, like those pearl divers and stuff. They don't use equipment. They just go down. Some of those guys can hold their breath four or five minutes. It's like, while well, they're active. You know, it's not like they're just laying as still as they can get their heart rate reduced, you know, and everything, and now they're holding their breath. No, they're busy, and they're still holding their breath that long. It's pretty amazing. I want you to think about something. No one, absolutely no one can go on without breathing indefinitely. No matter how long it took for you to get your breath back, you were really glad you could take the next one, weren't you? But your body's starting to hurt. You're starting to need that next breath. When we stop breathing, we die. When our lungs and our hearts stop working, we die. That's the reality, isn't it? Have you ever stopped to think about the shortness of your life? Have you ever stopped to think about your life's uncertainty, its unpredictability? We can't even control our next breath. Now, we, we take it, but maybe it's not going to be there the next time. Maybe something will prevent that. Maybe something will block it. Maybe something else will happen to us physically, and the next breath never comes. And when that happens, this life is over. You go into the next one. You go to eternity. Have you ever thought about your own mortality? Many people have really not stopped to do that. God is the giver and sustainer of human life. He gave us life. He decides when life will begin here on earth. And he decides when life here on earth will end. We are given what we are given. Some people are given what we call a long, happy life. And some die, as we might say, they died before their time. They died before anybody expected them. It was cut short. Viewed from an eternal perspective. You look at all of eternity, even an 80 or 90 year life is really not very long, is it? 
But every day, every breath, every heartbeat comes back to our Creator who is the giver and sustainer of life. Job 34, 14 says, If it were God's intention and He withdrew His spirit and breath, all mankind would perish together and man would return to the dust. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12.7 says that when death comes, the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. He's the giver and sustainer of life. We are eternal souls created by God. God chooses when our lives on earth begin. He's in charge of when they will end. That being said, second point, we are fools to try to play God. We are fools if we ever think we could play God. And people do try. He is the only one who should decide when life will end. And we are playing God in this life when we take someone's life, when we do something deliberately to take that life. Human beings reproduce, as do most other creatures. Some that don't fit that, but most of us, that's the way things go on. Most of the time, babies are born within a marriage relationship, but often they come outside of marriage. Sometimes procreating babies is intentional. Sometimes it is not. Sometimes a pregnancy is when a man and a woman intended that child to come, and sometimes a child is unwanted. Some babies are procreated, not as a result of any loving relationship, as a result maybe of a, of a sinful thing or maybe of a, a criminal thing. Reprodu reproducing a baby after our kind is a natural thing, but it is not something we can make happen. Even with fertility drugs and all the things that go on today in vitro fertilization and everything. We cannot control that. That is God giving life. He is the author of life. He is the creator of human souls. And more than just a physical body, God is the only one who can create the eternal soul. He alone allows a human being to be procreated, however that may happen. And that is why the Bible tells us that God closes the womb of one woman and opens the womb of another. We are simply physical beings through which God makes a baby, but we cannot create a soul, an immortal, eternal soul. Only God can do that. Now, I don't want you to think that it doesn't matter, human-wise, how a pregnancy was begun. It does. God has given us guidelines. He wants those to happen within a marriage, within a relationship, a lifelong context of, of that relationship. But even when it doesn't, God is the only one that can give and sustain that life. He is not responsible for the sin, maybe connected with how that baby was created through sinful behavior, but he is still the author of life behind it. None of us can be born without his consent outside his will. And that is why it is so foolish to ever play God, to take a life. It is foolish to decide when someone else's life will end. And I'm not talking about wars where men and women die because there's something worth fighting for, worth dying for, greater than their individual lives. And I'm not talking about accidental deaths when it is no one's intent that someone should die that day. But I'm talking about murder. I'm talking about infanticide. I'm talking about euthanasia. All these different ways that someone may decide that someone should die. A murderer may kill someone because of his greed or his anger or his envy. He may do, simply, may do so because that person simply gets in their way. They had something he wanted. But sometimes deaths occur willingly, by choice, for what we might call more honorable intentions. 
The person who takes someone's life may decide to end their life out of pity or compassion for the suffering that they're going through. Maybe you heard the report that uh, last month there were two brothers, 45 years old, identical twins in Belgium. They had been born deaf, but they had stayed together. They had made life together. They had been able to keep going. They actually worked and, and lived uh, you know, alone. They, their parents were still alive. They had a brother that was alive, but they were able to continue until 45 years old. But at 45 years old, they found out they were both going blind. And they decided that under Belgium law, if you are suffering too much, you can end your life. You can have a physician-assisted suicide. And so last month in Belgium, they applied and got approval that they would be lethally injected and they would die. 45 years old, said goodbye to their parents, their brother, uh, drank a cup of coffee together, visited a little bit, and said, okay, goodbye. And they died. And that was within the law. In fact, about a 1,000 people a year in Belgium decide that their life is too much suffering for them and they would rather die. And law says they can do that. It's also true in Switzerland and the Netherlands. There are only three countries where that law is in effect. Is it going to come here someday? I don't know. Do you see that abortionists and doctors who perform mercy killings are playing God too? They may justify their actions in a number of ways, but they are playing God. We have really overstepped our bounds when we decide another person's life must end. That is God's area. That is God's prerogative. That is God's will. And we leave it in his hands. Solomon said it well in Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. God is the giver of life. We are fools to play God. Back in Acts 17, 26, we read, From one man he made every nation, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him, and find him, and touch him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live, and we move, and we have our very being. God has a plan and a vision for every person on this planet. All the billions who have ever been born on this planet, God had a plan, God had a vision for every one of those people. He has a purpose in mind for whatever time we have here on earth and for eternity. Now, we may know this, we may not. Many people are born, live, and die, and never knew that God had a plan, never knew that God had a purpose. But God continues through His Spirit, to pursue each one of us so that we can know the life He wants us to know. That's what Paul's saying here. He has a plan. He has an idea so that we might look for Him and we might reach out to Him and find Him. He wants to be found. We can draw close to God or we can reject Him. We can obey Him or we can rebel against Him. But what we choose to do has eternal implications. Because what happens in this life here on earth is what sets the stage for what happens for all eternity. We make a choice and the consequences follow for all eternity. We are eternal souls made in the image of God. And it is a fearful, awesome thing to think that our actions on earth have eternal consequences. And that's why we have to be so careful about some of these choices that we're making. And that takes us to our third and final point. What Paul says, 
to the Athenians in the Areopagus. He says, God commands everyone to repent. Not most most seeker-sensitive thing I've ever heard. You know? Get in somebody's face and say, you know what God wants? He wants you to repent. He wants you to change the way you're living. It's wrong. And you've got to stop. You've got to change. You've got to turn from that and turn back to God. And the reason Paul can say that so confidently is that God is the one to whom we owe our lives. Going back to our text in Acts 17, these Greeks that Paul was speaking to thought that they were so smart, so learned. They loved to explore all the ideologies and philosophies and thoughts of the day. And, and Luke tells us that this was this a great group of philosophers and intelligent people who loved nothing more than that. Sit around and, and debate that. Greeks had a long history of that, didn't they? Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, others. And Luke tells us that the Areopagus was a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, the Epicurean and Stoics had this idea that what we did in our body was separate from what we did in our minds. That the body and the mind were not you know, uh, linked that much. You, you, could, just, you could, could treat the body however you wanted. It didn't really matter so much because what was important, what was in your mind, what you were thinking, what you were contemplating, what you were meditating on, what you were doing with your thoughts. And so two, two ways of living at, at that uh, came, came to be. One was that you would just deny the things of the body. You'd, you'd feed what you had to. You've got to live. You've got to eat. You've got to rest. You've got to drink water and so on. And so they would do just the minimum, but not really indulge in any of the things of the body because they were really concentrating and focusing on their minds and controlling what their minds were thinking and trying to think all these beautiful, wonderful things about philosophy and other things, and you deny the body. But a large group of them went the other way. They said, since the body is not connected to the mind, it doesn't matter what you do in your body, then let's just go to do whatever we want. Let the body just satisfy itself any once. Don't worry about whether you're married to them or not. Don't worry about whether it's good for your health or not. Don't worry about whether it has an impact on other people's lives or not. You go do whatever you want with your physical body because after all, your mind's over here. not connected to what that body's doing. And they became hedonists. They became uh, pleasure seekers. And one of the most immoral, godless societies that was ever on the face of this earth was under that environment, under that umbrella. And Paul is saying, God's going to hold you accountable like he holds the rest of us accountable. And when he said, God wants all men everywhere to repent, they cut him off. They said, okay, uh, thanks a lot for coming. Appreciate all that you said about the resurrection and talked about other things, but that's all we want to hear. And they never invited him back. Thankfully, Luke says a few of them continued the conversation privately with him. And he went on, and eventually some people in Athens came to Christ. You know, a day is coming when everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God. And God wants us all to be ready for that day. When he says repent, it sounds harsh, but it's not harsh. It's not uncaring. It's not malicious. It is not capricious. It is not God saying, you know, I don't really care. I'm just going to make your lives miserable. I'm going to deny you all the good things in life. You can't have any freedom. You can't have any fun. You can't have any joy in your life. I don't care. That's not what he's saying. God is saying, I do care. And I see you destroying your life. I see you making choices that are going to have terrible consequences for you and the people around you. And I want you to get it right. I want you to understand me. I want you to love me. I want you to live within that love. And I want 
as your creator for you to live the life I have envisioned for you, the life that I've designed for you. And the only way for that to happen is for you to stop doing what you're doing and come back to me. That's repentance. God is commanding everyone everywhere to repent. He loves us. He wants the very best for us. He knows that we are sinners. And He knows that we need a Savior. And so He sent Jesus so that we could be saved. Now this is not a popular message today either, is it? People want to be the Areopagus, thinking high thoughts and having all these philosophies, all these religions, all these different ideas, and they're all as good as the rest. No harm, no foul. Just believe whatever you want. Do whatever you want. If you want to mix a bunch of them together, that's fine. So we have people that have three or four different religions all mixed up in their own little special set of beliefs and values, the way they live their life. But don't preach repentance. Don't preach a need for change. Don't preach about sin and death and hell. Our society today is quick to focus on freedom of choice, but slow to focus on the results of those choices. We don't want to talk about consequences. We don't want to talk about the damage. We don't want to talk about where this is going to go if we do that. We just want to do whatever we want to do without repercussion. The Bible is clear that all of us, however, will at one time or another be held accountable. Romans 3.23 says, There is no difference for all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And you know, when I hear the word all, it means all to me. I don't know what else it can mean. Everybody in this room, everybody I've ever met, everybody I ever will meet, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. It's not dollar fifty. It's not $500. The wages of sin is death. The only way you pay for your sin is to die. Not only to die physically, but to die eternally. To die the second death of eternity in hell. And we must repent of our sins and our sinful choices and come back to God. Come back to Jesus. And He alone can save us by His grace. Jesus alone can bring us back to God and make it possible again for us to to discover the life that God had in mind for us to begin with. He alone can give us our lives back. This time, to live them according to God's plan. Bruce Ferris said, God never made another one like you. He never will. Maybe that's a good thing. God never made anyone else who can fill the place you can fill and do the things you can do. This is the wonder of the way God forms human life. That of the billions and billions that have been born upon this earth, there are no duplicates. Identical twins are not duplicates. There are still differences in them. Each one is unique. Each one is prepared of God for the time in which he or she should live. Connie and Bonnie are identical twins, but they're not the same, are they? <laughs> it was a good thing you said amen instead of other people, maybe. <laughs> but God knows each one of us, and He values each one of us. Do you get that today? Do you get that, that that pre-born child who is only a few days since conception, or a few weeks, you know, moving along towards birth, but they're not there? Do you get that, that Becky Orovitz's little boy that was born, a, what, a week ago? Not less than a week ago? He is as valuable three months ago as he is today. It, it didn't change, did it? 
Did it change just because he was born? No. He is an eternal soul, and God has a plan for his life. He has a plan for yours. I want you to watch a video, just to kind of seal that thought, and then we'll close. Lord, I thank you for today, for the, the word that you've given us through the Apostle Paul to remind us that we belong to you, that you are our God, our giver, our sustainer, our creator, and we owe everything to you. Uh, Lord, thank you for having a purpose, a design, a plan in mind for each of us. Uh, how awesome you are, Lord, that you can know us personally, that you can value us infinitely. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for the difference that he can make in our lives as our Savior. For the difference that he can make in our lives as the leader, as the Lord of our lives. And as we think about these things, we hear your words. That all of us everywhere should repent. Turn our lives back to you. Lord, if there's somebody here today that has never done that, I pray that you would speak to their heart as powerfully as they will allow you to. Speak to them of the need for Jesus. Speak to them of the need for the transformation of their lives that only Jesus can work. And may we each humble ourselves before you and acknowledge our need for you today. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for guiding us. Thank you for empowering us that we could live as you want us to live. Thank you for this church family Thank you for our brothers and sisters here. As you value each person, so do we. And we know that each can make, make that special, unique contribution to your kingdom. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song together.